I'm picking up right where we left off the last time I was in this pulpit, but that's been some time. And it all has to be held in context to get the great impact of what's going on here. But I'm not going to go backwards. I'm going to pick up from verse 27, and I'm going to read down through chapter 20, verse 16, because it goes together. And then let's see what God has for us as we consider His Word today. Hear with me the Word of God. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the generation, regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who came, who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowners, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Our Father in heaven, now as we consider this text before us, We ask the Spirit to give us the spiritual discernment to be able to understand the message that you would have for us from it today. We pray you would tune our hearts in to to listen with the eyes of faith and pray the Spirit of God would impress it upon our own hearts to shape us to be more like Christ in all of His generosity. And we pray that you would Bring forth fruit in our lives 
from the preaching of the word this day. May we think about our God more accurately according to the truth before us. And we pray you be glorified as the messenger this morning is weak. We know that your glory is manifest in your strength. So be strong, O Lord, for your glory and your name's sake in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As there often is with Peter, there's often a a sharp contrast. And I could think of no starker contrast in the juxtaposition in this passage with the context that he immediately preceded it when, as you remember, he just got finished dealing with a rich young ruler. You will recall that in the preceding context that Jesus is dealing with a rich young ruler who had come to him asking him what good thing he can do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus had to walk him down the path of correction so that he could understand that no man is good. This man was approaching Jesus as a man, not as divinity. And he had to correct that notion that no man is good, no one is good but God. Therefore, it wouldn't, there's no good thing that he was going to be able to do to inherit eternal life. And he, rather than explaining all this to him, he literally had to walk him experientially down a path so that by the end of that path, the man would understand what was before him. And so as he began to walking down the path of keeping the commandments, knowing that no one has kept the commandments, but this man had thought that he had, He then puts his finger on the very issue that this man had. And that was one where he wasn't loving his neighbor as himself because of his possessions. And so the Lord uses that particular phrase as a substitute for the 10th commandment of thou shalt not covet, which was the biggest problem this man had. So as he comes to the end of his discourse with this young man, He tells him to go and sell everything he has, give to the poor, and come and follow him. And at that point of juncture, the man went away sad, as the scripture says, for he had many possessions. Go and sell everything and come and follow me. And it's in that context that Peter erupts on the scene in verse 27, we have left all to follow you, what will we have? He just got finished telling the rich young ruler to divest himself of everything he had. And now you've got Peter in the sharp contrast asking the Lord, what will we have because we've done this? Could there be a more stark juxtaposition between what Jesus had just been dealing with the rich young ruler and now what Peter is asking. Peter wanted to know what they had coming to him. It was not a bad question. For we see in verse 21 what prompted him to say that 
When Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. It wasn't that there was going to be an absence of any kind of possession or reward. And that prompted Peter to wonder, what will we have? The subject of God rewarding his people is one that oftentimes makes Christians uncomfortable, especially today in the light of the prosperity gospel that is preached on the airwaves and out of various churches. If we steer away from the error of those systems, however, sometimes we go too far and we fall off in the other direction and we discount and we minimize the rewards that God gives His people. And as we read from Hebrews 11.6, we have to believe that God rewards those who diligently seek Him by faith. God wants us to think about Him in a certain way. And while Jesus did warn us over and over again, to count the cost of discipleship, he also talked much about the rewards in following him. And he even used rewards to motivate his followers. Now that that strains us a little bit here sometimes because we want to follow the Lord from love and of a pure heart. But there's a way to do that and still be motivated by what he has promised us as far as the treasures and the rewards that He has stored up for us. And so that's what we have in this passage. We have in this passage the rewards of God that are not only equitable, but they are generous. And this morning I want you to think about the generosity, the lavish generosity of God. And if we can think that God is like that, there's an application for us to be more godly. First of all, I want you to consider the rewards that the apostles themselves will have. These were actually very special and unique rewards pertaining to these apostles that walked with Jesus. We see in verse 28, if I can get my bearings here, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now we have this word regeneration. And we become very familiar with that term. The term is mentioned only twice in the New Testament. And the word means literally a rebirth. It's a renewal. The only other time that this particular word, regeneration, is used is in Titus 3.5, when the scripture says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. See, this is how we come into the family of God. We are born into the family of God through this rebirth of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. 
We are born from above. But in this passage that we're looking at here, it's not using this term regeneration in that sense. It's used in a different manner. It's not unrelated, but it is not personal and individual in that sense. In Titus, it's the individual rebirth of each one of us who are Christ. So there's a clue to help us understand what this means in this context in Matthew 19. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits upon the throne of His glory, then this is going to happen. This is part of the reward that He's going to be expressing to His twelve. When is that exactly? When is in the regeneration? The regeneration is qualified by this phrase, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory. And we know that that has already occurred when He rose again from the dead, He ascended back on high, and He sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. And He sends the Holy Spirit And our Lord Jesus in His resurrection is enthroned. He is the King and Sovereign over all. And it is that moment in that time that the regeneration starts. And we are still currently in its ebbing stream heading toward its consummation in glory. So all of that is past. Which means that the disciples are receiving their reward, even now. It started then, and they are still receiving their great and special reward. And he refers to this period that has already begun. This time when the Holy Spirit was then poured out on individuals, and yet at the same time, And the regeneration has to do with the whole corporate nature of creation. So in Titus, it's speaking about our individual regeneration. In Matthew, it's speaking about the entire rebirthing of this creation so that the new heavens and the new earth have begun in the resurrection and enthronement of Jesus Christ as His kingdom now grows. So there is this aspect of a corporate nature where even the earth groans until its consummation. So there is this this larger picture of regeneration, of this new creation, new heavens and new earth. It waits its final consummation when Christ comes back. But do not think for a moment that this world is stagnant or it is degenerating until the time of Christ. This world is dynamic and the victory of Christ and His sovereign enthronement on the throne even now is progressing His direct scheme progressively, growingly, sanctifyingly toward glory when He comes back. Never lose hope in that truth. The world has a different kind of news. 
but we have the truth. The world can only give us what it sees and measures empirically. But the truth is that which we must embrace because faith is the evidence of things not seen. Trust in the Word. The resurrection and enthronement of Jesus Christ changed this world forever. The likes of which will will never go back. And it is now progressing toward an end in glory. And we need to keep our hope fixed there, our faith seen there, so that the things we do today are in light of that certain truth of where all of this is going. Do not be discouraged. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Keep your hands on the plow and keep plowing forward for the glory of God. Now the disciples are receiving a special reward. It says that they'll be judging over the twelve tribes of Israel. There's a couple of points here. The reference to the twelve tribes of Israel is not to be considered the literal Old Testament tribes of Israel. But those twelve tribes are to be considered as holistically all of God's people. Old Testament, New Testament, today, the entirety of God's people. It's a spiritual Israel. As Paul would say to the Gentiles of the Galatian region, we are the Israel of God. So, The 12 tribes are all inclusive of all of God's people. And secondly, the judging is not to be thought of as then bringing in the 12 tribes and being the arbiters of something as a a judge on a seat would have. It doesn't mean that they will evaluate the past performances of the tribes of Israel like a judge standing before him. That's not what it's getting at. But the apostles are going to be put in a position as judges over the whole church. And we know that Jesus and the apostles become the foundation of the church upon which the rest of the building will be built. Jesus is that cornerstone that squares it all up and upon which everything else is fitted. But remember, it is the apostles' doctrine, the teachings, the truth that Christ has used in, through them upon which we are to continue and to abide. So there's a very special place for the twelve. As we think about judging and justice, justice is not just taking and exacting righteousness where unrighteousness is. It includes that. But it really is a broader term where when we're asking God and looking for Him to come and judge the world in truth, we are asking Him to take everything that's wrong here and set it right. And it's the truth of the gospel of which the apostles have given us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is the way in which all of the wrongs of this world are being made right. It is the power of the truth that changes lives. It is the power of the gospel that changes the world. 
We will not legislate it into righteousness. It is the power of the gospel that will work through the regeneration and the power of the Spirit in applying the work of Christ's victory to hearts one by one by one to change the course of this entire world. Jesus would instruct them a little later in that upper room discourse that He's going to pour out His Spirit upon them. And when He does, He says, when He comes, the Spirit of God working through you, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And these things will avail to the glory of God in the everlasting kingdom that will never be overthrown. The disciples will play an important role and are continuing to play an important role in the kingdom of God as their truth and doctrine is what the church continues in. I don't know if you caught it, but we, we read or sang of something earlier in the service today about the thrones, plural, of David. And there's only truly one ultimate throne of David, and that's who, that is what Christ is sitting on, and He is the ultimate David. But there is a thrones in plural, of which the truth then is that which judges this world and dispels all of the darkness and all of the falsehood and error so that the glory of God can be seen. Well, second of all, Jesus reveals that it is not only to these special 12 disciples who are going to have a special reward, but then He includes everyone who has left his sister or brother or father or mother or parent or child or lands or home or all that he has to follow Jesus. And he's going to tell them of a reward. The rich young ruler should have hung around a little bit longer to hear the rest of the story. Because he assures every one of us that whatever you have left behind to follow Jesus, whatever relationships have been strained because you follow the Lord, whatever kind of lifestyle change may have been affected or a job that has been lost, you will receive a reward proportionately to what you have sacrificed. Jesus says you will receive a hundredfold. That's a proportionate amount. Consider in your mind for just a moment what sacrifice that you have had to make over time to follow and to do the Lord's will. Have you had to forfeit any family members? Has it cost you any relationships? What has it cost you to be faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ? There's some of you here that you don't have the relationships in your family that you had desired or hoped for. And there's a cost. But there's a promise 
as you have faithfully followed the Lord. Consider the lifestyle sacrifices. Some of you have picked up and moved across the country to become a part of this church because the church was more than the possible means for your vocation. It became a focus and a priority worthy enough to pursue. And perhaps you're living a a lesser lifestyle today than maybe what you left. I don't know. But there's a lot of factors here. Perhaps you're living a life of singleness for the time being because you weren't willing to compromise with a, a looseness of just accepting something that was not perfectly the Lord's will for your life. Perhaps you've experienced a loss of a spouse in one way or another because of your following Christ faithfully. But Jesus says you have a reward proportionate to that sacrifice. And what you have will be a hundredfold as much. You lose one, you gain a hundred. How good is that? Now Mark also includes something that Matthew does not hear. Mark says the reward will not only take place in the time of reckoning and glory of which we can long for, but he also says in this life you will have this reward. Mark 10, this parallel passage, verse 29 says, Jesus answered and said, Assuredly I say to you that there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Sometimes your church family and oftentimes your church family sticks very close to you and is often closer to you than your old unsaved family who you left in order to follow Christ. There's fulfillment in relationships with your brothers and sisters. We saw the beauty of so much coming together around a wedding, which we often do. We also share in the sufferings around a funeral that we come together around. But there is a bond of familial love that transcends so much of the earthly relationships that God has given us a hundredfold and even more. In many cases, your church family will rally around you more than your family, your blood relatives will. A hundredfold and eternal life. Well, we have in the end of this passage in 19, but then going on into chapter 20, we have two bookends. And it pulls the passage into chapter 20 into the direct context of chapter 19. And we should note how the passage ends when he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Same phrase is used in verse 16 of chapter 20. 
when he then says, so the last will be first and the first last. And by this, we, we know that these things go together in context. So what he just got finished telling the disciples and then broadening the application to us, he's now going to help us to think something in a way that we ordinarily would not think by giving us this particular parable. And he wants us to connect all these things together. Now, there are two ways that we, you and I in our fallen humanness, or even perhaps in our humanness, tend to think about the principles of work and reward. The first one was in Peter's thinking. And in Peter's thinking, he is expressing the idea, well, it sounds like those who followed the Lord first will get the preeminence in the reward. In other words, people who were saved at five years of age will get preeminence when the time of rewards come over those who've had a deathbed conversion. Those who were called in service earlier in their lives and who have labored longer get a greater reward than those who have only labored a short amount of time. That's the principle that seems very logical indeed. And there's another principle there in the way that we tend to think is that there's a principle of reward that is proportionate to the sacrifice that we have given. It sounds like I'm saying that the people that sacrifice the more get the most back in the reward. Now I'm going to say that both of those principles are taught in the New Testament to some degree. But that is not the point here of what Matthew is revealing to us. And I think to get the point of which Matthew is going to get to us and unpack, we have to think in a different way. And that's why the first will be last and last first. And he's showing us the way we normally think, first come, first serve, is not the way that God thinks. And he wants to show us something of his goodness in this. The point that Matthew here is getting at is something different. There's something about God that we are to learn here. And like everything else in God's revelation, there are aspects to it that would have never occurred to us. It would never have entered our mind. And that's where some of the splendor of the wisdom of God comes in. He surprises us. But when He surprises us, it's always something that confronts our human wisdom and it's more glorious. And that's where this story comes in. Jesus is going to teach another principle of reward here that would never have occurred to us. And what does he mean in this statement? What does he mean to teach us here? And there's two things in this story that are keys to understanding what he's trying to teach us. And number one is the reference to time. The reference to time. We find in chapter 20, verse 1, 
that it was early in the morning, presumably the first hour. The first hour of the day in the way the Jews would recognize it would be 6 a.m. in the morning. But we find in verse 3, there was then a reference to the third hour. That would have been about 9 a.m. And then in verse 5, a reference to the sixth and the ninth hour, 12 noon, 3 p.m. And then in verse 6, reference to the eleventh hour, 5 p.m. So we have a 12-hour day. We see all of those time references are a key to unlock the story. Some worked for only one hour. Others worked for 12 long hours. So hold that in your mind for just a moment because there's a second key and that's in reference to their labors. In verse 12, they have now complained and they say, you have made them equal to us. This is in reference to Jesus paying out the the full denarius to those who only worked an hour. And then he pays uh, one denarius to those who he mutually agreed with before to work the entire 12-hour day. And they said, but you have made them equal to us. And yet this is not just their point of view. It's also our Lord's point of view. See, the point here is one of equality. The time references and the time of these laborers were unequal. But their reward is the same. Now those two things in combination are the key to understanding the story. So if we go back now and we try to arrive at now what the Lord is teaching us about reward. Let's be very clear, He's not talking about Unequal reward for hardworking people and for lazy, non-working people. That is not the point of the story. Nor is he teaching that there is equal payment for unequal work. That is not the focus or the point that he's getting at here. When you get to the end of the story, the landowner, the Lord himself, will tell us what the point is. So if we go back to verse 13, he's now going to answer the one who thought he was assuming that they're going to get more as he watched the wages for the day being delivered. And he says to the one who complains to him, he says, friend, I have done you no wrong. I have done you no wrong. You know, every follower of Jesus will be rewarded by Jesus just as Jesus has promised. In verse 2, we see a mutual agreement that had been made. And the landowner was faithful to his promise to give exactly what he promised. Now that means that Jesus is going to keep his word And echoing back into chapter 19, that means when Jesus says He's going to give you a hundredfold according to your sacrifice, He's going to give you a hundredfold. You can bank on it. You can count on it. 
you will receive just as He promised. God is faithful. He is equitable. He is truthful. God will not slight you in what He told you. And there is a reward of a hundredfold that is already quite lavish and quite extravagant and quite undeserving. And He says He's going to give it to you. So the first principle of reward that this passage is getting at is that God is faithful in what He has promised and He will keep His Word to you. You can bank on it. You can count on a hundredfold reward beyond what you sacrificed to follow Jesus. There's another principle of reward here, and that's found in verse 14. And he says, take what is yours and go. I wish to give the same. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Now we're ramping it up to another aspect here. When God desires to do whatever He wishes with whatever He owns, we call that what? His sovereignty. His sovereignty. When God does whatever He wishes with whatever He owns, we call that His sovereignty. It's His right. He owns it all. He owns you. He owned Pharaoh. He owned everything that He's created and it is His right to do with it whatsoever He wills. He can take one lump of clay and make it into a vessel fit for honor. He can take another piece of clay and fit it to a vessel of His wrath that had been prepared ahead of time for His wrath. And He is, that's His prerogative. The second principle of reward is this. God is sovereign and can do whatever He wishes with whatever He owns. Let God be God and see how good His sovereignty truly is to you. His sovereignty will never be contrary to His word. In other words, He will not give you less than what He promised. He's not going to give you less than the hundredfold and say, well, I'm sovereign. He is going to support the first principle of His own faithful character and giving you what He promised. And yet He is sovereign and can do with whatever He wills. And those two will never be in conflict. And you've got to think about this. Not everybody has been given the same opportunity. Not everybody has given the same time or the same gifts. Some come to Christ on their deathbed and praise God. Others have experienced almost their entire life of knowing Christ. But does it mean that those who are on their deathbed who just enter into Glory at the last moment shouldn't have anything. The first principle is God is faithful to what He's promised you. You can count on a hundredfold. 
Second principle is God is sovereign. He can do whatever He pleases with whatever He owns. But we find a third principle in verse 15. And He challenges those people who say, now wait a minute. Is your eye evil? Are you envious? Because I am so good? The problem is the generosity of God in the fallenness of the man's heart. Envy distorts now the the very nature of God in this. And he says, is your eye envious? Because I have decided to lavish and be generous by my very right of sovereignty upon all that I have bestowed upon these who've only worked for one hour, and yet I was very faithful to you to give you what we agreed upon. The third principle is this. God is very generous. And your reward will be according to His faithful word, principle one, according to His sovereign choices, principle two, but your reward is going to be according to His lavish generosity. His lavish grace. And there's a ditch here that you've got to be careful to steer away from. It's a principle that you need to teach your children and you need to teach it by example. Do not be envious when God decides to bless another in a manner that He has not blessed you for the present time. Or for any time. Envy is not love. Love does not envy. Hatred is, is that which envies. It's a characteristic of the enemy, not of God. And when God blesses that person over there who worked one hour, He wants the laborer who had worked for 12 to rejoice in those things. Wow. What a, and it's not about the laborer. It's about the generosity of God. And if He's going to be that generous with that one who worked for just one hour, what other great stores does He have in mind for me? But it's about God. Always start out with a presupposition that God does not owe you a thing. And you only go up from there. That's the secret to being content and happy with the lot that God is giving you without always comparing yourself with, oh, I wish I had, or if, if I only had, or if this and that ever happened. And it's all about this. No, it's about what God is doing. He is lavish and He is generous with you. So rejoice when He decides to bless others. You still don't know what all you have coming. And never let envy creep in to undermine the glory of the generosity of God. Now I want you to note just a couple of points and we'll close. When Jesus asked each one of those at each part of the day, why have you not been working? They answered, because no one has hired us. Notice in the story that everyone was responding faithfully to the opportunities that he had. 
everyone was willing to work and serve. Basically, everyone was responding to work in this story. Some were responding earlier, some responding later, but not all the opportunities were equal. Not all of our lifespans are equal. Not all of our giftedness is equal. And the results of our earthly labors are not all equal. There is inequity in all of those things. And God is sovereign over those inequities. But the question for you and me is have we taken hold of what God has given to us and been faithful with what He has asked us of? And secondly, have you done it for as long as He has asked of you? Have you been and are you being faithful with what God has given you? Then in the end, understand that you may have a much shorter duration of time or actually involved in a lot less exercise of giftedness. In the end, the Lord wants to be equitable with you. He's going to be faithful to give you a hundredfold because that's what He told you. But He's sovereign over everything and He can give you more. And just know this, he's going to be very generous with everyone. And we all ought to be happy with that. So the question this morning is, if that's the nature of God, lavish generosity. How are we like that? Some people are calculating in the way they think about life and money and time and finances and they deal with little pinched percentages and tight minutes and there's an exactness to their spirit. While others are just kind of open-handed, giving. That's, that's, that's the way God is. It's not only equitable and just, but He goes above and beyond pouring out where our cup flows over and it keeps flowing over with goodness and His love upon others. And that's the spirit and the manner of the heart that we should be to be God-like. God is lavish in His blessings. Lavish in His rewards. And God will prove Himself to each one of us to be the most generous and gracious master that could be possible to serve. If the rich young ruler had just stood around for the rest of the story, perhaps the results would have been different. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, you've taught us of something of yourself today that is contrary to our natural inclination of the way we think. And sometimes our spirit resists with envy when we see how lavish you are in your generosity and pouring out upon your people rewards and blessings and gifts and things that we do not deserve. How thankful we are that you've given us a vision of the splendor that there's so much abundance with you that 
these things will not be exhausted for all of eternity. May we trust you to be faithful because we know it to be true. May we resign ourselves into your sovereignty, trusting your good wisdom to do with what you own that which you please. And may we embrace the lavish goodness and generosity of God so that as we see you, we would become more like you and that we would love others and esteem them better than ourselves. Lord, we have hard lessons to learn in life. Lessons that are impossible for us, but we ask the Spirit of God to do that which is impossible which is part of the lesson in this context as well. So we pray you would be glorified now in bringing forth the fruit of this message in all of our lives as we relish the goodness and grace of our God in the table that you've set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.